You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resipsinski and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to motivate and inspire you to continue your rules-based investment journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry, where we discussed whether we are right in using historical volatility for position sizing and how much of a portfolio should be allocated to trend-following strategies, just to name a few of the topics we covered. But Mark, it's uh, fantastic to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are in the U.S.? I'm living well in a K-shaped recovery. Actually, this week I got my second vaccination, so I'm uh, I'm fully vaccinated and ready to do whatever I have to do to travel and under current restrictions. But uh, I've got my shots, so I'm feeling good. Can I ask which one you got? I got the Pfizer. Okay. Some of the vaccines have been under some level of scrutiny, as uh, they have found that at least with the AstraZeneca one. Apparently, it develops its own disease that they've never seen before. The country that I come from originally, Denmark, have completely stopped using it, which is quite interesting. Anyways, this is certainly not a podcast about vaccines. On the other hand, we are going to talk about quite a few interesting topics, I have to say. I'm excited about today's conversation. But before we dive into that, I, I normally do my little market wrap and I do find that there are some interesting things and narratives happening in the market right now. For example, we've seen this relentless will and effort from the Fed and other central banks to pop up asset prices, especially the financial assets. And that has gone hand in hand with the mantra, don't fight the Fed. There's no alternative to buying stocks while we have interest rates that are being suppressed, so to speak. And therefore, most investors don't fight the Fed, so to speak. But there is another message coming from the Fed that I think investors are maybe happily ignoring because the Fed has recently, at least in my mind, been saying very loudly, we're going to do everything in our power to create inflation. If investors are going to really adopt the don't fight the Fed mantra, then shouldn't we take them at their word? And therefore, we should be biasing towards higher inflation, which means financial assets may not be the place to be. I don't know the answer, of course. Uh, I just think it's worth having an opinion about it. And there's another interesting thing that happened this week while we saw Treasury yields actually drift uh, a little bit lower from the kind of sell-off we've seen in bond prices earlier this year. We've seen a little bit of relief in the last few weeks. And the thing that stood out was the optic in the reverse repo, the RRP, because at the March FOMC meeting, the committee announced that they would expand the RRP availability to $80 billion per counterparty, up from about previous $30 billion per counterparty. Now, the presumption at the time was that the Fed wanted to expand its program to soap up so much of the excess liquidity in the system. The RRP is essentially 
a de facto overnight security issued by the Fed to select counterparties, including banks and certain of the money market funds. And prior to this week, this facility was only doing a total volume around 20 to 30 billion a day. But then on Thursday this week, the RRP surged to over a hundred billion dollars. Interest rates payable on the RRP is zero. And so you may be wondering why investors would buy a security that didn't pay any interest. I think the answer is that a money market fund would rather earn 0% and maintain its government-only profile than buy a negative-yielding T-bill. In and of itself, this optic in RRP is something that may not uh, give us any clue of the, of the Fed's next action. And of course, it suggests that the Fed has just flooded the system with the liquidity. However, I think it might be worth just keeping an eye on these volume numbers, further clues in terms of that liquidity indeed. Now, Mark, I always want to hear your 30,000 feet view of what may have caught your attention overall before we dive into the details and so on and so forth. So since we were last on a few weeks ago, about a month ago, what, what have you been noticing? Well, the one thing I'd like to go back on your comment on reverse repo, because I think that a lot of people, when they think about trend followers or a lot of macro traders, they think that we're looking at very high level issues. And what you find out is that there's a lot of value in what I call the plumbing of the system. This is that, that when you think about market efficiency, a an academic will always think about market efficiency as like, can I come up with a grand theory that unifies everything? And people who are involved in the markets have to constantly be involved in the plumbing of markets. And if you're in futures markets, you'd say, what are the contract specifications? What is that going to mean to how markets move? Even in, in a sense, is it as a focus more on global macro, I feel I spend more time in the plumbing than I do on, on some of the macro issues because I say, this is where all the activity and this is where crises are going to occur. And uh, I will say that, and this will be a theme that maybe we could talk about a little bit later, is, is, is that I wrote about something earlier in the month that is that I think is I'm constantly facing. I'm ex-anti-ignorant about a lot of events that have occurred. And then ex-post, I become very knowledgeable. <laughs> and what I mean about <laughs> is that did I spend any time at all or prior to the GameStop issues thinking about GameStop? And the answer is no. I was ex ante ignorant. When you think about our, our friend in Asia and his uh, levered trades in prime brokerage, I, I think I understand the prime brokerage model. But I probably would say that I was ex ante ignorant on exactly what was going on with this particular case or what are some of the problems associated. And then after the fact, I become very well educated quickly. But it's almost too late. <laughs> it's, so one of the big problems that you're always faced as an analyst and a manager is, is that you read about some sort of explosion or some issue, and you said, gee, i got to now get up to speed on this issue. <laughs> I've got to do it really quickly. And the next thing you know, you feverishly try to learn everything you can. But then you find out, you, you, you take a step back, you say, it's too late. That horse has already left the barn. And so how do I prepare myself for the events that I'm ignorant about that I got to well, deal with later on? <laughs> that, 
And you know what? That is a great segue for one of the points that I want to talk about just after the kind of update on performance as such. But another thing, you mentioned two things here. We could just talk about COVID and how many people knew or talked about COVID prior to January of last year and how many people know a lot about COVID now. It's how it always yeah, works, right? The, the question is that it's almost like how as a investor do you battle this phenomena of if, of moving from ignorance to knowledge, but there's a time factor when you have this switch, uh, when you, as you acquire knowledge, there's a time of, uh, timing effect. And the timing effect is, is that you're always late. <laughs> True. And that, of course, assumes that you need knowledge to make a, be a successful investor. So I might come back on that point in, in, in just a second. Before I do so, let me just give my quick run-up in terms of performance on our side at Don. It was another solid uh, week in terms of performance. Interestingly enough, performance really came from only one area of the portfolio, really, and that was commodities. And I think it serves as a good reminder what the C in CTA stands for. And you can even narrow it down further to the grains, which had a really great week from a trend-following point of view. But there were a few other of the Cs, so to speak, that did well. Currencies, copper, coffee, cotton were a few other that performed well in our portfolio. And elsewhere in the portfolio, we really saw very small givebacks in things like energies, fixed income, and equities. But all in all, a positive week, strong month so far. The trend barometer actually also saw an uptick on my side, although it finished the week at 41, which is kind of a neutral reading, but it was up for the week. And that in itself tends to suggest that the environment for trend following is improving. In terms of our volatility strategy, this uh, week was also a profitable one. And from my colleagues running the volatility strategy, they pointed out a few interesting things, such as that the momentum of the S&P 500 is still pretty strong with 97% of the stocks trading above their 200-day moving average, which is the highest level since 2009. Historically, that tends to give one uh, to three months positive returns, but there are some signs of potential exhaustion in the index. Both the Russell 2000 and the NASDAQ 100 uh, already had some corrections this year, and there are several indicators like the increased margin speculation and some extreme sentiment readings that could be seen as warning signs, I guess. Also, equity indices are already above most sell-side analysts and their price targets for the entire year. And they are trading at PE ratios only seen back in 1999-2000. And finally, another statistics I got from them, and that is the past year has seen more plus 1% gains versus losses than at any time before in the last two decades. So maybe it's time to think about getting some exposure to trend following and volatility if some of these signs are to be taken seriously. Now, for my own trend following model portfolio, where I can, of course, go into somewhat more detail, it was flat this week. It leaves it up 3.58% for the month up 12.93% for the year. This month so far, the performance is coming from group one and two models. So classical trend, but also trend following, quote unquote, with a flavor of how a discretionary trader would trade. They were up respectively 2.2% group one and 2.06% so far this month, while the faster reacting group models are down about 0.68% 
uh, being whipped around a little bit in equities and bonds this month, but not much. In terms of sector attribution this month, equities are doing best, followed by base metals and then the grains. And the worst sectors this month is really the currencies and the bonds. In terms of single markets, if we drill down there, Australian spy and aluminum are doing best with copper coming in 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 the third place. And at the bottom this month, we see the euro, we have the yen, and we have the US 10-year notes. In terms of trading activity, the week started out with the system getting out of some short yen positions and also buying some Mexican peso as well as palladium. And the model also tried uh, for some of its uh, fast reacting models to go short the DAX when it sold off during the week. It also bought a little bit of grains and it also added some copper as those markets moved higher. And in terms of the risk in the portfolio right now, I use this risk to stop, meaning if all positions got stopped out on Monday, it is expected then to lose 13.8, sorry, 13.82%. Yeah, that is the number, which is up about 2% from 11.86% last week. And that's obviously partly because markets have been moving in, in, in the trending direction, so to speak. So as long as the stops don't react as fast as the markets are moving, then this risk, open risk, goes up a little bit. And there were about 15 trades uh, this week, so average, nothing extraordinary. Now, Mark, I have been looking forward to discussing some of these points. The first one actually is based on what's happened during this week. So this is brand new, interesting stuff that we can talk about. But we do have some questions from Raymond and Dirk that we're going to dive into a little later. But what I'm talking about is really the news we got from a very large Swedish systematic global macro fund called IPM. They decided to close shop and return all of their assets to or the remaining assets to their clients. Their AUM in the last few years, uh, and I don't mean many years, two or three years uh, max, had dropped from about $8 billion to less than a billion this year. And I've wanted to first maybe ask you a little bit how you see the difference between systematic global macro and what we do as trend followers. Because I think that many people are not quite sure what the difference is and often prefer, at least that's my experience, they often prefer the systematic global macro because it seems easier to understand. What are your, what are your thoughts? I, I think that when you describe systematic global macro, you would say that there is an increase in the number of signals beyond price that will determine what will be buy and sell in the portfolio. And in some senses that what you're doing is you're increasing the set of information that can be used by which to make uh, specific investment decisions. I think that there's a uh, interest from investors for this for the simple reason is, is, is that uh, it can tell better narratives and it, uh, it makes them feel comfortable. You'd say that if someone said, I look at the uh, global PMI trends, if I look at uh, what's happening to uh, uh, consumer sentiment surveys, if I look at certain other macro information, that gives them a sense of comfort that you're uh, including all of the set of information by which to make your decisions. And when you think about the trend follower generally, and we'll say, I'm very focused, is that I'm I'm saying that all of information is going to be incorporated in price. And those prices may have some lag to what may happen in the future. There's an underreaction. 
So consequently, we'll say that the trend follower said, I'm not going to look at a lot of this other information because all of the information is already embedded to some degree in price. And that the information that I may be seeing that's fundamental could be lagged because it could it's what happened in the past. It also is information that could be subject to revisions. What I might see is that unemployment this month may be different than what I see after they revise it next month. And so there's a fundamental view on how you use information or what's the set of information that you should use by which to make decisions. And I think that most of the investors will always say more is better than less. So anyone who uses more information by definition, has to be better than those who use less information. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but I say that's the assumption that people are going to be making. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts uh, from my side. First of all, I was very fortunate that early on in my quote-unquote podcasting career, I actually interviewed the founder of IPM, Anas Lindell. So there is, in the very, very early part of the Top Traders Unplugged catalog of podcast, a two-part interview with with Anas Lindell. So if people want to understand what the strategy was, at least back then, those would be uh, two good episodes to spend a little bit of time. It's very informative. It's very interesting. We talked about your ignorance ex-ante and your huge amount of knowledge ex-post. And this is interesting because Systematic Global Macro, I kind of understand why it's popular. Because if people say, yes, but our models are telling us that if inflation rises, it has these consequences. And people can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that before and, and that makes total sense. And so I think they can quickly get quite comfortable with the idea. But I do think that some of the things that IPM cited, or at least maybe the press cited when they were talking about their decision, was the fact that they felt that markets actually weren't reacting as they should, so to speak, based on the economic data. And we've all talked about this before. We've seen it. We saw the worst crisis in in our history, at least last year, from a GDP point of view, from an unemployment point of view, et cetera, et cetera. Yet the markets rocket to all-time highs, at least in terms of the equities and, and so on and so forth. Correlations broke down between gold and bonds and all that good stuff. So to me... And I don't know how to phrase it in an elegant way, but I think one of the key differences, and I think this is a hugely underappreciated attribute that trend following gives investors. So if on one hand, you could say that systematic global macro, they built their models to deal with risks and patterns that we've seen before in the economic data, and in this case, for the most part. But what trend following really does, even though we use historical data, I think we built our models to deal with surprise. And this is why I said to you that maybe you don't need to know anything and still be a profitable investor, because I think that's what we're trying to do by not being too clever about how markets should react, uh, but just saying, okay, if they react this way, this is how we're going to deal with that. And therefore, we don't really worry too much about what's going to happen uh, in the future. So those are some of the things that, that, that I've noticed. But I have to say, firms like IPM have been incredibly successful in attracting investors over here in Europe. And they were really the talk of the town. And it was very difficult 
to persuade people that a pure price-based strategy that knows nothing about the future would be a better bet than a sophisticated economic model that analyzed all sorts of economic data. There, there's this all view that old school versus new school and the new school that that uses uh, new computing te- and data science techniques are going to be better than, than the old school. And it's unfortunate when any firm goes under. And uh, I could say that running firms, this is that it is really difficult because as you lose assets, you face the the difficult task of understanding the economies of scale or diseconomies of scale of running a business. And so you go from a billion to eight billion dollars is that you start staffing up, you start building, you know, structure around around a eight billion dollar institution or you as a bigger institution. You start losing assets. This is that how do you deconstruct the firm? How do you reduce headcount? How do you start to cut costs? What do you do for for in a changing margin world? It's it's difficult to deal with. Now, I will say that one of the challenges, whether it's a trend follower or a discretionary global macro or systematic global macro, is that you're earning your fees because you're supposed to learn how to adapt and understand the changing markets in some sense. People pay you to say that if markets change, you're supposed to figure it out, and that's why we're paying you a management incentive fee. And, and it, it's a tall task, but that's what, you're, uh, that's what you're being paid for. Yeah, and it's funny if we digress a little bit from our normal conversation and just dive into the topic of managing these businesses. I've run large CTA businesses, you have as well, so we have uh, some experience with that. And I wonder a little bit, they were closing their fund at $800 million under management still. Now I know, of course, you're absolutely right that, that from $8 billion to less than a billion, that's, and we don't right. know the full story. They could have had many more redemptions already knowing about it and say, okay. But still, I, it goes back a little bit to getting new talent into the industry also because it seems to me that there is this, how should I put it, change where suddenly you almost can't be a successful manager unless you have 500 million plus under management, which I don't, I really don't think that's true or necessary, especially in a world where you have so much uh, technology that can work for you, especially when you have so much, so many super external service providers that you can utilize as well. And I think it's a shame if we end up in a situation where you have to manage almost a billion dollars for people to even want to do it. And this is not to make it a biased conversation, but as most people know at Done, we don't charge a management fee. So whether we are at a billion or two billion or 500 million, we need to make money to our clients. And we've done that for 47 years. So that's another pressure you get. But it also shows, I think, confidence in what you do and the strategy and showing that you are willing to sit on the same side as the investor. So I think personally, it's a very fair way of doing business. But then, of course, as I said, you have other businesses that even if they are got 1% or 2% management fee, unless they make $10 million plus in fixed fees every year, they don't even want to do it. I think that's a shame. Now, there's a, the economics of running a firm is a very interesting topic because I would say that given, uh, given for example, it's not if you want to start just a small CTA and you're doing friends and family office, but if you want to be institutional ready, the cost of running a CTA to get started 
is fairly high. It's much higher than a discretionary trader because a discretionary trader doesn't need as much, quote unquote, infrastructure. So when you think about it, the cost of starting a, uh, a small CTA is very high. Then the economies of scale kick in and you get to half a billion, two billion, and you could actually run a lot of money and, and the, the margins are very strong. Then you get to a point where now you start to see some liquidity constraints. Now you have to build more models. Now you have to add more infrastructure. How do you deal with the fact that some markets start to be closed because they're less liquid? All of a sudden, the cost structure goes up and the impact on return becomes very high after you get to beyond a certain number. And it could be $2 billion, $3 billion. But I think that it's for example, if you look at a CTA, you can trade anywhere from 50 to 100 markets. But I will tell you is, is that if you have a meaningful allocation to something like coffee, sugar, cocoa, and you're running a $2 billion CTA, and then you want to sort of get good execution costs on that, you'll be surprised at what happens to you when you start to try to get good execution for some of these markets, especially in the commodity side. It is really hard to reduce that cost and control the costs of execution. And this is where, and again, this is just my personal opinion, but I do think this is where, unfortunately, we do see perhaps a little bit too much greed not just in CTA land, but in, in anything to do with managing money. Even in, you could maybe talk about things like ARK Invest right now at whatever, 50, 60 billion on the management. At some point, finding the level where this is the best level of AUM for my clients and saying, okay, this is where we, we, we stop and we don't take any more assets. I see so few firms doing that. And I see so many people later see their AUM drop like a stone because maybe performance just starts to lag and, and so on and so forth. And AUM is very often the cause whether people will admit it or not. And, and you see this, for example, in the largest CTAs, is, is that as you, after you get to a certain point, and I'm not going to say what that point is, it could vary, but I have an idea what that point, a point is, is that you're going to have to start dropping a lot of commodity markets. So you can't trade 50 liquid commodity futures markets if you're a multi-billion dollar CTA. So by nature, you're going to have to now start to focus in on financials. And right away, that starts limiting your diversification. It limits what is the set of choices you have, even for a trend following. And then what happens is that you really got to be very good at getting those, those decisions. And I think that the, I don't want to say it's a dirty secret, I think everybody will talk about this, is that if you go at annual performance for a lot of CTAs, this is that they may be trading, let's say, 50 markets. But we'll say the majority of your returns are probably going to uh, come from less than 10, probably about five. So there are five markets that are going to make you a lot of money. There may be another set that are just a, a little bit, and then there's some that you're going to scratch, and you're going to, and then there are another set you're going to lose on. But I think that when people look at the return attribution for a CTA, what makes them sometimes nervous is the fact that they'll say, "Whoa, you made all your money in that year from crude oil trading," and you say, "Yeah, that was a great trend." And you say, "But I thought I bought this diversified portfolio," and you say. No, I, you bought a diversified set of opportunities of which crude oil became the best one. And that's where we generated most of our return. And 
I, I think that's, the, these are little things that, you know, when you got to get under the hood, you start finding out about how CTAs operate. It's neither good nor bad. It just, it's just the way the, the, the markets behave and it's the way the return profiles of, of the strategy behaves. And I think that's a good point. And of course, we often hear Jerry talks about the this uh, example, I think it's from 1991 or 1990, I can't remember, where he made 30% in, I'm just saying, unleaded gas or something like that. I can't remember which market, something like one of the energies. And he made it all in December, but that was also the whole return for the year for the whole portfolio. So you're exactly right. We have to talk about diversified opportunities, not necessarily that the returns themselves will be diversified from many sources. They don't have to. And it kind of ties in quite nicely. You said something earlier, which unfortunately I forgot, that fits nicely into the next topic that that I wanted to touch on. This was prompted by an article I was sent by a good friend in the industry. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name any names here, but it's important for me to stress at the beginning that I'm using this article as an example. I have actually only a lot of admiration for the firm. They've been around since 1971, so for 50 years in our industry. That requires a lot of discipline and success, and it commands a lot of respect. There's nothing negative in what I'm about to bring up as a point. But I do think the topic is interesting because it is about this change of regime and whether the old style of trend following still works. We know that's often up for debate or whether we need to move on to some new types of techniques. In this particular case, it's machine learning. And the firm I'm talking about is Milburn. Uh, Milburn were in some articles a couple of years ago, I think exactly two years ago in the Hedge Fund Journal, where they talked about their journey from being the classical trend follower. They started three years prior to to Don uh, did. So they're probably maybe the oldest still in business, uh, or maybe they're not really a CTA anymore. I don't know. But they talk about their journey where they started moving towards, quote-unquote, statistical learning-based framework, let's call it machine learning, away from the classical trend following. And I think, and I might be wrong a little bit about the timing of all of this, so I apologize in advance, but I do think that a couple of years ago, they it, sa- it says here, over the last decade, so this is the article from March 2019. Over the last decade, it became clear to us that the explosion in data had the potential to have a major impact on understanding markets. This meant simple rules-based approaches to using momentum were perhaps not going to work as well going forward. Sounds very similar, and I don't really want to put words in his mouth, but it sounds a little bit similar to what David Harding did around the same time, moving away from trend-following in a sense. And then I think they went on to, in February of, of, of that year, maybe, or, or there around, yeah, maybe in the month before the article, they talked about as of February, it had phased out traditional trend following entirely in favor of its contextual statistical learning framework work across the main long-short diversified multi-market and commodity programs, completing the firm's transition from a rules-based to a pure data-driven approach. So... That's the context, that's the framework. So they obviously were early uh, adopters of trend following. They were early adopters of more statistical-based approach, and let's just call it machine learning to to keep it simple. 
And then last year, there was an article, actually, I think this is from their own website, so it's probably a paper they wrote, where they talk very openly. And I think this is the beauty of what they've done, is they've been very open about this journey and and their lessons. And I think this is what I wanted to talk to you about, Mark, because I do think you've brought this up, and I think you've actually worked with kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence. So this is why I thought it would be interesting for our conversation today. But they talked about what they learned from using machine learning strategies in March of 2020. And so they write, we run a number of programs at the firm, but the common thread is that they, that the active risk taking, the signals that we generate that tells us whether to go long or short or whether to take more opportunistic or defensive stance in the market are all driven 100% by machine learning technology. That's really just to confirm what I said earlier. And then they go on to say, this unfortunately didn't help those investors who were looking to us for to potentially provide some relief from losses um, they were seeing elsewhere in the portfolios. We felt for those losses too, as substantial investors in our programs ourselves. So clearly what they're setting up here is the fact that March, the February-March period last year, turned out to be incredibly difficult for them despite having switched from to these machine learning strategies. And I'm just finding a few paragraphs here that that just to give you a little bit more context, Mark, before you give me your thoughts. They write, they, if you follow the equity markets closely as the pandemic accelerated, we started to see some very unusual behavior in many, actually almost all of the equity markets that we trade. As an example, at one point in March, we saw the S&P drop more than 28% in a matter of 13 trading days. This was something truly without precedent. Using the S&P as an example again, we also saw materials, sustained volatility, with daily price moves exceeding 10% both up and down. Again, this was behavior we had never seen before. So again, going back to this, are we building models based on things we've seen before? Maybe, again, systematic global macro does the same. I don't know. Or are we building models like I think trend following really are? We're building them for surprise, for constant change. I think, again, this is an interesting thing. They also talk about, and I'm just quoting from this paper, the accuracy of the models forecast in the equity sector was certainly worse than we had hoped. Uh, Okay, that's fair. And maybe we need to not go into too much further details about what happened. But I think the whole point is that they and their models were surprised. I think they intervened manually. I think that somewhere in the article they write that they had to intervene manually because, again, they felt that this was an environment that had not been seen before by their models. So given your experience and kind of tying in what we heard earlier about systematic global macro, now it's machine learning, what are your thoughts? What do you think? What do you think investors should take away from some of these, from some of this evidence? I guess we could say it is playing out in front of our eyes. I guess start with that uh, the systematic space is a big tent. There's a lot True. of room for uh, for interpretation and differences of opinion on how you can make money. And I probably am a little bit more of an agnostic in saying this is that I think that if you think you can be able to use some some tools and you can create an edge and you uh, feel comfortable with the relationships that you found, 
that's great and more power to you. Or probably Jerry, if he was on this, asked the same question, he'd be, his hair would be on fire with the philosophical differences. And, and I think that in itself is, shows that there's a wide tent in the systematic space. This is a couple things that always jump out is that from, a, from running a firm, I think that the important point is to have transparency. So if you make a transition or you do things that changes your model and approach as a systematic manager, are you are you disclosing that to your clients? Are you being able to tell them what you're doing and where what is your philosophy? And I think from the transparency when I use the word philosophy is very important. So a philosophy for markets is says can you be able to create an edge? Do you believe that markets are efficient or inefficient? How inefficient? And do you believe that there are relationships between fundamental factors or other factors and returns on a go-forward basis? And I think that doing due diligence on managers, which I've done at some point when I was running a fund of funds, and even for some of the work that I've done in an advisory basis, is, is that you always start with the idea of what is the philosophy that the manager has on how markets operate? And given that philosophy, now how do you use the tools, and you could say machine learning is a tool, how do you use the tools that are available to exploit the philosophy or the view that you have towards market behavior. And the question comes in as always is, is that first, are you comfortable with their philosophy? Second, are you comfortable with the tools that they plan on using? And third, can you be able to appreciate and can they be able to convince you is that that the use of their tools can and given their philosophy can then be converted into returns? And in some senses, is that philosophically it means is that they say that those who use a lot of machine learning, other techniques, says there are relationships that have existed in the past that will continue to exist in the future. What they're saying is that those relationships may be hard to find. That those relationships are maybe what we call nonlinear. So nonlinear in the sense is that they may need conditions by which do you would, they would that you can exploit them, but they are repeatable, they're accountable, and you can be able to then exploit them in the future. If you believe that, then you're gonna you you can use machine learning, and it makes perfect sense. If you have a philosophy that says this is that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the world. And uncertainty means is that relationships change. And in some sense, those relationships, because they change, I will get false signals if I look at the past and try to use those, uh, those relationships in the past to try to exploit something in the future. And, and I think that, for example, is, is, is that a classic trend follower would say is, is that, well, given the uncertainty across all these relationships, I have to only use a primal number of relationships. And the primal number is that what happens to prices in the past is likely to continue into the future. It may not be clear exactly how long, but I could say I can use or I can ex exploit price relationships to be able to find trends. And in some sense, the trend follower is a passive investor in the sense is that a trend follower would say, I try to find trends 
and then I will make returns if the trends actually exist. So that doesn't mean that they're passive and they're not doing anything because they're trading, they're following their models, they're looking at these trends. But they're saying, if there are no trends, I will not make money if I'm a trend follower. The machine learner or the, we'll call it the uh, systematic global macro person says, is that I'm not a passive investor. I will go out and find relationships and I'm going to, when you think in an active sense, I'm going to exploit relationships. I'm an activist in the market. I find new data. I manipulate data and then I I exploit data. So it's a, a very active engagement with data and relationships between markets. Yeah, it's interesting to me. And of course, I'm incredibly biased in this discussion, but I find it interesting that still, in my mind, so relative few investors have a meaningful allocation. A lot, most investors have no allocation, but there are some, and they have a relatively small one, but there are still very few who have a meaningful allocation to trend following. But when I think about it, and that is when we look back and we look back at history, what, what is history? History is usually an account of surprise. We don't put mundane events into history books. We put all the big surprises and events into history books. And so you would think having a strategy that's designed to cope with the next surprise makes sense. And I think maybe we still have to do a better job in explaining why people should have a meaningful allocation to to trend in their portfolio or to surprise, so to speak. You, you know that I'm always good about circling back to what we originally talked about. Yeah. So what we talked about our ex-ante ignorance and ex-post knowledge is that <laughs> I think that the difference between risk and uncertainty is no ability. Okay? Risk is when I can be able to understand all the different choices I may not know what will happen in the future, but I can understand all the relationships and say, there are relationships that exist. There's probabilities for different events occurring. I could look at all the different cases. I don't know what case will happen in the future, but I can understand all the different choices uh, or, or alternatives or scenarios. Uncertainty is that we don't know what is possible. Okay. And If you believe that we live in a very uncertain world, then you are going to go down one path, which is to say, I got to, I, in some case, want to use some more simplistic views. If I believe that I, I have a large degree of knowability and I can then condense this into a risk problem, then I could say is that I want to use machine learning or I want to use more fundamental information. And a lot of this has to do is that you look at uh, naturalistic decision-making, and this is from the psychologist Gary Klein, and then the head of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin is Ge- Professor Geiginger. They talk about heuristics. Now, in general, is that when we talk about Keenemann and, and behavioral finance, is, is that the use of heuristics has always been viewed as a, oh, that, that'll be, make, that's irrational, that people who use rules of thumb are ignorant that but in reality is this is that using heuristics is the way we deal with a lot of different uncertainty and when you think about trend following is a form of heuristics it's a rule of thumb that say that when i'm faced with a lot of uncertainty what do i do 
I fall back upon simple rules. And the simple rule is that if the prices are going up, they probably may continue to go up. If prices are going down, then they're probably going to continue to go down. The hyper-rationalists would say who don't believe that there's a lot of uncertainty and believe that the world is knowable and it can be assessed as risk would say that's a that's an irrational, that's a behavioral bias that you shouldn't use. For those who are saying that in a real world context, which are faced a changing, uncertain world, that this is really important. And Gary Klein often talks about what is called uh, recognition prime decision making. There's a recognition prime decision making is is that, and he studied this with, for example, a battalion chief on on a fire brigade. They see a, a fire. Now, Every fire has some similarities, but the, every time, every fire is always different. Now, he has to determine, am I going to send people into the burning building and is it going to crash down on them or they're going to be able to put the fire out from going inside? This is that. So what he's going to look for is going to be use his, he's going to be looking for key signs or rules of thumb by which to make that decision. And he has to make that in a split second he has to make it under intense stress. And in some of those is that, can you be able to do an optimization under those conditions? Meaning that I can figure out all the different probabilistic choices, weigh them, and then use an optimizer to find out what I should do. And I'm not against optimization, okay? And I think optimization is very powerful when you have enough time and you have enough information. But under you know stressful conditions, using a recognition de- prime decision model is better. Using rules of thumb may be better when you face maximum uncertainty. And so a trend follower is saying this is that when I face a high level of uncertainty and markets are constantly changing, which they are, because it's there's a behavioral component, the components of who trades is constantly different. Then I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have to be using these rules of thumb, and we find this already. I think we were talking a little bit about machine learning, or you mentioned machine learning. This is that it's if I'm doing facial recognition of trying to say, can I be able to take photos and be able to find out of thousands of photo what is a cat or a dog? You could say that. The features of a cat or dog may be different, but I could say there are sort of characteristics of what it means to be dog or doggedness. And I could then be able to learn from different photos what it means to be a dog. And I can then be able to reinforce learning because I could say I get penalized if I find a cat when I'm supposed to look for a dog. I I can use that technology. Now, what happens if, let's say, the features of a dog are constantly changing? so that the dog today is different than the dog yesterday. That becomes a much more difficult problem. I'm not saying it can't be, now, it can't be solved. It just takes more work. And at the same time, is is that you're going to get more error. And that's what you find with some of these firms. Some of them have been done very well. And I think that they've exploited different opportunities in the marketplace. But at the same time, there's also a place for those who are more recognition-primed, rules-based, heuristic-based investors, such as trend followers. 
Yeah, now I go way off off track here in in my own little mind. But you can even make the same argument. You don't even have to go for a different kind of dog or different kind of cat. I think it's well known that in the last um, few years, facial recognition is something that is used heavily in, for example, airports. So we we feel safe because all these cameras, they will recognize our face and they will alert someone if they see someone that they uh, don't like, so to speak, on some kind of watch list. But suddenly, what changes is the fact that suddenly we have a pandemic and we all wear, wear face masks. And actually then face recognition isn't very effective when everyone is wearing a face mask legally in the airport. So circumstances can change. And I think that's the point that I do think people just need to recognize because you could have a simple rule that if someone in an airport is running around with a machine gun, then that should alert you. That's, that rule doesn't change, right? You don't need face recognition for that purpose. But maybe I should stop here before I go completely off track. The point I'm saying is that I still think the strength of trend following lies in the fact that we're not trying to pretend that we know what the next event or the next price move is going to be. And they it doesn't have to be something that's happened before, as we saw last year, because things will always change and there's always going to be a new crisis. Right. Now, now when you think about this, that most people who have been trained in science have read the the work of Thomas Kuhn on, on scientific revolutions. And what what you find out is that it's not science is not very linear, that it actually has big jumps, is that when conventional wisdom is uh, you found that the data no longer supports or you get alternative, you have failure of existing theories with empirical data, then there's usually a, a paradigm shift. And I think that before you get those paradigm sh- shifts, what you'll have is a situation is, is that uh, that we've had in the post-GFC period. This is that trend following did well during the, the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009, we came out of that crisis. This is that some did well, but then you say in the 2010 to 15, in that, that post-GFC period, trend following didn't do as well as, as it historically is, is done. There have been other periods of failure for trend following, but this was not a very good period. And when you think about it, this is that it's natural that then people would say, I need to rethink my philosophy. I need to say, are there other techniques that I need to do? Should I switch my view of the world and my uh, my underpinnings of how I look at my model? Some firms did that. And, and uh, now they're either successful or they're finding out if the world moves back to more normal, that this is that then it's going to be more difficult. Others have taken a view as is that I've seen that there's booms and busts in, in momentum trading trend following. And my job is to say, how do I use my risk management to ensure I can ride through this period of time until I get to the other side? And in some senses that you can see that some are saying is that I got to live with this because I know that over a century, trend following is going to do very well. Okay. So I just got to batten down the hatches, try to make sure that I ensure that I stay in business and keep moving forward. Others say, I want to make that switch. I'm going to go into a, uh, a different, change my philosophy and use different techniques. And we'll say that the marketplace is an, is interesting because they could say, 
will reward those who are successful regardless of what is the transition or what is the philosophical change towards markets. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Mark, we're already uh, almost at the one-hour mark, and we haven't even started on any of the topics that you uh, kindly <laughs> sent over. So why don't we just, if you look at your list, and why don't you pick a couple of those that you like, that you thought would be really good, and we'll keep the other ones for another time. We also have a couple of questions uh, that I would like to get to. So when you look at your list of topics what what stands out to you right now what are the things you think we should be talking about today it's interesting and this all goes back to uh and just a quick anecdote and we could probably come back to this is this is that uh i was going back over some research and about 40 years ago michael jensen who is one of the real top people in finance in in finance for the you know 20th century said we're done. market efficiency has been one of the most studied areas we have seen and this is almost settled science we know markets are efficient we don't have to worry about this topic anymore let's move forward there's nothing more to see there's nothing more to see do here and i'm looking at this 40 years later and i look at first Trend followers still exist and have been successful. Uh, successful behavioral finances come into existence. We talk about the the limits to arbitrage, which offers opportunities and inefficiencies. This is that surprisingly, is that what some people viewed as settled science forty years ago. We're we've been able to get new information. We've come up with new theories. What we found out is, is that in some senses is that uh, there are people who were trend followers back then and, are, you know, and some are still in business. And so I think that if you look at, I think if, uh, your friends had done, is that they were fighting the same battle about whether they could make money in an efficient market 40 years ago. And they're still probably having that same discussion, yet they're still here 40 years later. Yeah, it's funny. Um, we we As you say, we've been around for 47 years and our current strategy, at least in its kind of form has been around uh, for 37 years. So we have a pretty long track record through, you could say, different market regimes. And one of the statistics that I like to look at is actually how has the performance evolved over three different periods of time since inception in 84 of the strategy, since we made the first major upgrade in 2006 and when we made the second major upgrade to the model in 2013. And what's really interesting, and I think people would be surprised to know because they have this notion about recent performance, but what is, and I have to be a little bit careful for regulatory purposes about talking about specific numbers. So what I will say, all three periods, double-digit returns, net of all fees. But more interestingly, the longest period of time, you would expect that to be the highest annualized average return, and it is. But what you also have to account for there is that up until 2007, at least at our firm, we included interest income, like most people still do, into the composite performance we have to prepare. So there was some of that up until 2007. Since 2007, we just decided that's really not any return we generate, so let's not include it in our track record. Of course, the clients get it in their accounts, but that's different. 
So, of course, you would expect the returns to be a little bit different. But actually, the returns, and they are, they're a little bit lower, a couple of percent lower on average since 2000, so between the long period and since 2006. And the period from 2006 and the period from 2013 till now are almost identical. And I think people would be surprised about that actually, and and of course, you can always find rolling three-year, five-year periods that were lower or higher. Of course you can. But over that period of time, so over around 15-year period and over around an eight-year period, those two periods as an annual average return are almost identical. So you could also argue the other way around, and that is, as you said, yeah, of course, we're still here trying to find out ways of dealing with all of this and efficiency and so on and so forth. But actually, trend following still can still find ways of dealing with this. Of course, you have to adapt and you have to evolve, and that's what these two major upgrades reflect. But it certainly doesn't suggest to us that trend following is less efficient in extracting profits from from the market. And this gets back to uh, a whole other topic, which you could always save in your, our topic to do to-do list. Is <laughs> it's it, getting uh, longer by the, t- by the minute. <laughs> uh, is that when you buy a trend follower, you're actually ask, asking for something that's positively skewed. You want to have a positively skewed return. And, and in fact, that's what a trend follower is trying to create. So is that you say you're long straddles, but in some senses that you're making money when market you know moves to extremes, divergent trading, is, as I call it. And the problem with divergent trading or positively skewed return profiles is that you don't know when those positive skew events are going to occur. You hope that they occur when you know other markets are falling so that you have this negative correlation or crisis alpha, but you know, don't know for sure. But the problem comes in is, is that if you look over a longer time period, returns could look very good at the same time as is that if you, as you look with your telescope or your microscope and you say you go from, let's say, a 10-year period to a five-year period to a three, two-year period, what you find out is this is that as you look into shorter periods of time, the performance of trend followers usually do worse as you go in, as you magnify into shorter and shorter time periods to the point where it's because you say, look, you could have a five-year period and you have one year that has a huge return and others are just modest or might be negative. And and in some sense, the battle that is often faced both for the investor who chooses to trade like a trend follower and the investor who invests in other firms is that that you don't like positive skew. Even though they say they 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 may want it, they don't really like it. This is that you actually want to have something that is is uh, uh, that makes return, and then when you have that negative skew event when it does poorly, well, in some sense, human nature tells us this is that if that negative skew event happens when all the other managers are doing poorly, you can shrug your shoulders and say, everybody got slammed in March of two thousand and two. What can you do? No one was able to miss that. And so people actually have this. They say they don't, but they have the preference for a negative skewed type of return profile. And what you could talk to a trend follower, you get the opposite return profile where you say, okay, it's possible. This is it. I'm just doing okay, okay, negative year. I'm just, And then all of a sudden you get this huge outsized return. 
And what's maddening for investors is that, okay, if I get that outside return, because there are a lot of mean return chasers, then they say, well, now I got to put my money into a trend follower, and now I'm going to go back into a period where I might be, quote unquote, more dormant. So it's it trend following requires you to throw out a lot of conventional wisdom so that and you have to be able to accept a different view of how markets behave and return profiles for managers actually exist. Yeah, with all investing, certainly it's not just a trend following track record, but with all investments, unlike the weather forecast where we look at the weather today and and we can be pretty good at forecasting what the weather is going to be tomorrow. But if we ask, if we are asked what's the weather going to be in 10 years, we have no idea. But it's actually the opposite with track records or annualized performances where you could say we have no idea what the performance is going to be tomorrow or the next year. But once you get out kind of 10, 15, 20 years, you have a pretty good idea of what the annualized return is likely to look like. So I think that's quite important. The other thing I just want to bring up and reminds me of a conversation I had this week with a with a potential investor and we were discussing about the kind of this maybe there's a need for more protection since a lot of markets are a little bit stretched and interest rates are going up and so on and so forth and they were saying that yeah they had a little bit of volatility in their portfolio as kind of protection and they're considering the time when they would need more and i'm just thinking it, it's very hard and obviously the True answer is it's impossible to know when you need more, when you need it. As you rightly said, because these strategies are what people say they want, but they don't really like them, they tend to try and time when they need this kind of these strategies in the portfolio. And I'm not so sure that's a great approach to this. As frustrating as it can be to have it all the time, I think it's a better approach than, than trying to time it. At least we've never found a way to do it. I, I once wrote a, a comical piece is that you remember that movie, uh, A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. Sure. And so they had Jack Nicholson playing Colonel Jessup. And they said, like, you'd need me on that wall. <laughs> you, however repugnant you think I am, you you want me there. You need me there. And I sort of the comical part was you say uh, that. Manage futures and trend following is the Colonel Jessup of your portfolio. <laughs> you you need me there. You want me there. Is <laughs> you find me repugnant yeah. in my recognition heuristics? But at the end of the day, is that if there's a if there's a massive divergent event, you'll be happy you had me. <laughs> the funny part is, Mark. The funny part of all of this is that for those who fully embrace the concept make a meaningful allocation to, say, trend following, or it could be a long-short volatility strategy that is also an absolute return strategy, right? It actually allows the investors to take more risk in their portfolio. It allows them to own more equities in their portfolio, really. And I think this is often missed, that it gives them a lot of freedom elsewhere in the portfolio to know that they have this in there. We had this deep discussion with a, a former employer, which I'll remain nameless. <laughs> and he said, look, I, we got our volatile trend following program. He said, well, I need to have a certain amount of my portfolio and treasury bills because I want to offset you know, some of my risk. And I was arguing and said, 
No, you want to do just the opposite, is that if you have this risky trend-following strategy that you know is going to do well if stocks go down, or, or and you really believe that, is that we should say, say, let's put all the chips on the table and put more equity exposure, is this is that given, the, and the more volatile the, the trend follower, the more risk you could be able to take because for a dollar of invested in trend following is going to give you that much more diversification benefit. So you'll turn around and put in more in your risk and uh, the risk side of the equation. And this is why the topic of the 60-40 portfolio is interesting right now because, and I was watching a webinar yesterday about the point and there were some interesting points made, but to me at least, this issue where we've seen some, very few, but pension funds embracing risk mitigation and creating risk mitigation components comprising of long-dated treasuries and trend-following, but given the fact that now treasuries uh, have been yielding such a low return, and in fact, if you were long in the last nine months, you would have lost 17% or so, so quite a nasty sell-off in long-dated treasuries. But you are absolutely right that having a, a large exposure to trend-following does allow you to take more risk, quote-unquote equity risk, elsewhere in the portfolio. And I think people completely miss that point. But hopefully, this is something that people will start to reconsider. Mark, again, just being conscious of time, is there another point you want to uh, or you want to uh, mention today? Or do you want to go into a couple of questions? Let's, let's go into some questions. This, this is that we, okay. we seem like we've had the stream of consciousness. We we don't need to go into other topics. We just start, no, we just get right. started and bam, we can yeah. use up an hour pretty quickly. So let's go I, some, I know. let's go to some questions. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. So th- this is what I really love about the podcast. So this question actually comes all the way from China. So I love this. I, I love the fact that Raymond, who is based in Shanghai, writes in with his question. Of course, the question was inspired by the conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Moritz about Chinese commodities. Raymond asks, I'm a big, oh, he writes, I should say, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've learned a lot from you and the other guests. Very glad that last week you talked about trading Chinese commodities. As far as I know, Winton and Aspect, and I'm sure there are more, by the way, have been trading and operating in China for many years and did much better uh, than their, and I would think the quote-unquote previous CTA programs, meaning those without the Chinese commodities. He makes some reference to Aspect's returns with or without these commodities because I think they published a piece that must have been from where he got the data. And he writes, so I want to know if you can share some particular methods or criteria for select for market selection other than just trade all the markets available based on liquidity and market participation. So from your time, if you put on your sort of CTA hat, Mark, what were some of the things that you liked uh, or your research team liked to look for in, in adding markets? And I will also say that I think a lot of firms have different views on 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 this we uh, at our shop we have not embraced this philosophy of trading as many markets as possible for sure so we fall in one category but i know and i think raymond is right that more and more managers have decided to add significantly more markets and therefore also embracing things like 
Chinese. Trading more and more markets by itself is always problematic because that means is that the average exposure that you have at any one market declines. So by definition, you're going to dilute those successful markets. And when we talked before is that you find out that most of your exposure comes from just a few markets in any given year. If you increase the number of markets, then that means you could have those four. You could have said, I exploited all of those markets that had great trends. I just didn't have enough of it. So that's the that's your worst fear is, is that I got everything that were the big moves right. I just didn't have enough of it. So when you say, yeah. do I want to ch- trade Chinese markets, uh, futures markets? What I'm looking for is uniqueness and difference in, in, in some senses that you can exploit opportunities, for example, in copper or gold. But that becomes a 24-hour market. And so what you're really not being able to get any uniqueness or anything special, not unless you look at the very localized short-term trading systems on a longer-term basis is that the gold market is going to be affected by London, New York, and let's say maybe Shanghai. So adding Chinese gold futures is not going to add a lot of value. What you do find is that there's a whole set of other markets which are unique and different that aren't traded in other parts of the world. And those are the ones that I would always focus on because by by definition, their return pattern can't be exploited in the other 18 hours of markets. And second of all is, is, is that it may offer unique diversification opportunities. Yeah, no, I completely agree with all of that. So I hope, Raymond, that that is helpful. The last question today is from Dirk. He writes in, you probably discussed this on your podcast, but listening to, must be last week's episode, number 136 for the systematic investor, I was wondering, did you backtest vol position sizing against simple one over N allocation? Curious if you found significant differences in portfolio vol and returns. Now, you heard, you mentioned earlier, you listened to Jerry and me uh, last week. Now, of course, one of the key discussions we had or conversations we had was from a great question we received, and that is, have we completely misunderstood how to use volatility inside a CTA model, meaning should we use historical volatility as we do now, or is it some kind of prediction when we do that, and therefore we are a little bit not living up to the full philosophy of trend following where we don't know what's going to happen, so to speak. And I think this comes back to, just, just sorry, this comes back to the fact that then the other discussion that we always end up having is this the continuously volatility-adjusted type methodology versus what Jerry does, what Mori does, what I do in my trend-following model portfolio, where we just take the risk based on the entry point, we size our position, and then we don't change that position until we exit. Right. And this is a very complex issue, and I think that... I think researchers who have shown that uh, volatility adjustment does well for for trading, they often, I think they miss some of the, we'll call it the plumbing of how this all works and some of the issues that are, are based with doing the adjustment because what you could have is a situation is that you have a good trend and if volatility goes up and you're going to rebalance on volatility, you could actually be taking money away from good profit-making opportunities for the simple reason is because the volatility is going up, but you had good volatility. You have deviations above the mean, 
which you're trying to exploit, and at the same time, you're taking money off the table from. The big problem I always found with volatility trading is that especially if you have crises where you have a spike in volatility, I have low volatility, and if I'm a volatility adjustment, it means I'm going to have high positions in low vol markets, okay? Then I have a volatility spike or a volatility event. And I'm not saying it's a trend event, but a, vol a volatility event. And then what happens is that they can say, now I'm going to sort of have to cut all of my positions. And usually if let's say that you have the market going up, I can have a situation where I'm cutting my positions on, on, on a trend that's going higher. So I'm cutting my profit opportunity. Then all of a sudden this is that now I'm at the top of the volatility, market starts to reverse. I'm gonna take small positions if I was on the wrong side of that trade, what happens is that I'm not going to make back my money because at the high volatility event, I'm now going to have all of my positions smaller. So you could see this happening if for those people who are wrong-footed in March of 2020. What happened is, is that they cut all their positions. Now I'm in a high volatility period. I have a great opportunity to see a reversal in stocks going higher at the end of March. But I'm going to be taking all small positions because I'm in a low volatility world and I can't make back the losses I had that occurred earlier in March if I was wrong footed going into that crisis. Yeah, not to give you too much pushback because I don't disagree per se, but having lived through March last year and working with a product that actually has some level of adjustment within frameworks of, of risk and therefore where volatility does play a role, it could also have worked out reasonably well for you, at least during parts of the crisis, because what happened really was that a lot of the risk was caught, as you rightly said, in the early part of the crisis when volatility exploded. But that also meant that if you just take a simple sector like equities, where most trend followers came in completely long, given the returns or the moves in, in equity markets at the prior period. So as the market sold off, positions were caught. But when the signals changed to short, volatility had increased so much that position size were actually relatively small. They were short, but not, but not so big. And so when the V-shaped recovery occurred, we didn't suffer so much because position sizes were small. But in fairness, and I think that's the point you make very well, it also meant that the recovery, the subsequent recovery, once signals turned back into the where the trend originally had come from, inequities to the long side, yes, then you're right. Then position size were small, and therefore it was harder to make back any meaningful profits in many of these positions. So I don't know whether you can say it evened out, but it certainly for from an investor point of view, those who did that it certainly meant that volatility in the performance was not an issue. There was no sleepless nights because of massive volatility in returns. It was actually very well managed. And so to me, last year has always stood out as a year of risk management. That's really what I think we got stress tested in the real world because as we talked about earlier when we talked about machine learning, no one had seen this environment in their historical data, which of course we use to build these models. 
going back to, uh, I mean, the question was in reference to your last podcast with Jerry, and Jerry said, well, I've gone back and forth on this issue. I could say, I've seen both sides of this issue. I probably would say that I do vol adjustments, and I think vol adjustments is an important part of the model and looking at correlation because that tells me something about what the contribution of each market will be towards risk, that those are important components that add to what I call it portfolio craftsmanship. So you can be a trend follower, and that's your core philosophy. Now, how you size positions, how do you account for volatility, how you account for correlation, how do you rebalance portfolios of markets, those are all a part of what we call the craftsmanship of portfolio construction. And there's a lot of room for value added for portfolio craftsmanship beyond trend following. And it's I think a that's really a important point. part of yeah. what you pay for a trend follower or any systematic manager, this craftsmanship issue. So it shouldn't be taken lightly. And at the same time, is, is that you'd say, you say you do have to spend a lot of time with that. I could say two people, we could have the exact same trend following view and if we differ on how our, we construct our portfolio and our craftsmanship, we will get widely different returns. And I think from a due diligence perspective, when investors look at trend followers and systematic managers, and I'm not saying that this all, I'll make a generalization. They spend a lot of time on the philosophy. Okay, you're a trend follower. Tell me how you find trends. And they may spend less time on the craftsmanship of how the portfolio is built, when in some sense I could say that might be the defining difference in characteristics of the manager. I think that's very great that you brought that up and a really important point. I'm sure we're going to get back to it. Maybe one day uh, you and Jerry will come on at the same time. And now that he's had the discussion with Rob, maybe it's time for him to have the discussion with you for or against volatility adjustment in the usual gentleman-like style that we have here on the podcast. Anyways, let's leave the questions like that. Then we have some more for, for next time, of course, in terms of topics, and I'm sure we'll come up with some new ones. I want to just, as usual, just let um, everyone know that performance so far this month, beta 50 up 1.33% in April as of Thursday night, up 4.04% for the year. SockGen CTA index up 1.5%, up 4.11% for the year. SockGen trend, a little bit lower returns, up 0.85% for the month, maybe more in line with my trend barometer, actually, and still up 4.86% for the uh, year. And the short-term traders index, interestingly enough, is down 41 basis points as of Thursday in April and up 1.56% for the month. As I mentioned, the trend barometer is 41 at the moment. You can check that out every single day on the website. And equity is still doing well. MSCI World up 4.78% as of last night, up 9.5% year to date. Mark, any particular other than your your own great blog post that you write that people should go and check out? Anything else that you've seen in terms of Interesting context, con- context conversation. Anything you've saw? 
well noticed. Yeah. I, I think that it's just amazing the amount of good writing that you see on, on blogs in general. And, and I think that on a lot of these topics that I'm not going to go into specifics, but I guess I'd say is this is that the writing and reporting on especially some of these events that we've seen, either SPACs, Bitcoin, uh, GameStop, prime brokerage and inflation, is that when I always talk about this exposed knowledge, I'm amazed at how quickly, if you can use different sources to get that wisdom quickly and, and on a lot of unusual events. So I'd say that to keep up your avid reading of Twitter and other blogs, because I think there's a lot of good information out from experts. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is indeed. And I am myself a big user of podcasts, other people's podcasts. So I completely agree with you there. I probably listen more um, than I read posts simply because... I can listen when I'm doing other things, like walking the dog, which my wife likes me to do. So uh, yeah, no, I think there's an amazing amount of great content out there. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. If you thought we did a good job in providing you with some content that uh, you liked, why not support us by going over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast? We would greatly appreciate that. Next week, I'm joined by Rob. As usual, that's going to be a super fun and educational conversation. So make sure you keep your questions coming in. You can email them to me at info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to get them on. And you can, of course, follow Mark, follow me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and where else we appear. From Mark and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Until such time... Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.